Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NutriCast, as always, I'm Adam Wilder, and today we have one of the, he's really one of the nation's best at Russia, and of course, that's Dr. Stephen Blank, who spent a quarter of a century up at the Army War College, and then he's been a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute for at least 10 years, and so he's been around a long time looking at the Russians and thinking deeply about what they're doing and why. And of course, as you, the listeners know, the Russians are, you know, they were down and out for a while and they were sort of an annoyance for a couple of administrations. And now they're back and more important than ever. And so we're going to join Steve as he gives us his thoughts on both the war in Ukraine, and then, of course, what do we make of Russia's nuclear threats and what can we expect from this Russia? Because he wrote a great chapter in a book uh, for me a couple of, I guess it's been two or three years ago now, where he he was one of the first people talking about this uh, budding bromance between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. With that said, welcome to NucleCast. Thank you for having me. Well, so, of course, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to the Russians. Was there, let me ask you this question. Was there ever a point at the end of the Cold War, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I uh, my language was Russian in school, and I was an aspiring Sovietologist. And then, you know, the wall collapses and, and I got told, Hey, Adam, you need to focus on China. So I shifted to China and my graduate work was in, in, uh, Russia was in China. And then, you know, I, I never got fluent at Chinese, but I, you know, that I switched languages and ultimately I, you know, I wondered, you know, was that refocusing on China. It's clearly, it's an important country, but I wonder, did you ever think to yourself, man, I'm going to be out of a job because Russia, you know, nobody's going to care about Russia. They don't care anymore. They're just glad the cold war's over. Is Russia ever going to be important again? Did you ever have those thoughts? Was there that day? Well, I never was worried about losing a job because I was in the civil service. So that's, you know, they don't, they can't just, throw you out. Uh, but interest in Russia did decline precipitously at the end of the Cold War, which is, the you know, after 1991. Uh, there are many ways to gauge this. I mean, I, I saw it in the work. But uh, I was able to keep writing because uh, I always thought that Russia was intrinsically interesting, although it was obviously going to be uh, in decline as, uh, as a power and, and an importance to U.S., 
but I never thought it was just going to go away. And uh, sure enough, it came back. But also, it, it enabled me to uh, start writing about Russia's experience with Asia and Asian security. So I've written uh, the, the, ch- the chapter I wrote to your book on Russia-China, for example, you know, is a direct descendant of that decision. Um, I, I don't claim to be a China expert or I don't pass myself off as an expert on Asian security, but I've written a lot about it, at least as Russia's re, uh, related. Uh, and uh, it has immeasurably helped my career, not not just because Asian journals value scholarship and pay, pay you for articles, but because uh, the center of the global economy and many of the major security issues are now in Asia. So, as we think about, you know, this this is clearly an important issue, and there was just a meeting between Putin and Xi, so it's, you know, it's a current topic. But if we shift to Europe first and think about the the war in Ukraine, so my take is, and you tell me if I'm wrong, because it, it's, I, I think it's somewhat conventional wisdom, and that is that, uh you know, Ukraine was falling out of the Russian sphere. There was this effort by uh, Ukraine to to either join European Union, join NATO, and that was sort of a red line for Putin. He had already lost the Baltic states. He lost Eastern Europe. They were all in NATO. And that Ukraine was this place where he had to take a stand, and he had warned the United States to stop moving east. And and there's a great biography, a new biography by Philip Short on Putin that covers this in pretty good detail. And therefore, he acted in 2014. And then, you know, Ukraine was still looking west. And therefore, he acted again in 2022. Is that sort of a, a basic, accurate understanding that Americans should have? Or is there a lot of nuance and detail that we're, we're missing out on? Uh, well, I would say you only got part of the truth. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, it's an article of faith to the Russian elite that NATO should not advance to the Russian borders, particularly Ukraine. The same is true about, Eastern, uh, about the European Union. So that much of the story is accurate. But the two other fundamental reasons uh, why this invasion has occurred, or three, actually, I would say, and uh, they're linked to those, what you might call security concerns of a hostile, from the Russian point of view, alliance being on its borders and uh, an antagonistic economic political union, European Union, uh, also being there. One of those points is that it is inconceivable to many people in Russia, perhaps even the majority of the population, that Ukraine is or should be independent. This is a passionate, and I use that term advisedly, a passionate issue from Russian conservatives. And even many Russian liberals don't, really like the idea of Ukraine being independent. Is this and, because and that it, of... That it is, because is, it is a repudiation of the whole of Russia's, 
of the Russian historical narrative and of the supremacy of Moscow as a city in Russian history and its legitimacy to claim that it is the source of power. There is a whole long debate. I would urge people to read uh, the books by Sergei Plochy, P-L-O-K-H-Y, on Russian and Ukraine, on the Russian Empire and on Ukraine. They're on Amazon. You can, you know, you can get them easily enough to, to clarify because we don't have time to go into all these uh, issues. They go back to the ninth century when the Russian state was formed in Kiev, and thus medieval Russia is called Kievan Rus. Moscow wasn't even a city till 1147. Kiev Rus emerges as a political entity, 878. That's almost 300 years. So the idea of Ukraine as an independent and particularly pro-Western state is deeply at odds with fundamentally held beliefs as to Russia's identity and history and, and Moscow's legitimacy. Second, the idea that Ukraine is a democracy is a standing threat to Putin's rule, which has become more maf- more totalitarian. I mean, it, it was a mafia state before 2014. It's become even more of that. It has reverted to classic uh, Russian formulations, as well as to a great deal of a great many elements of fascism. Again, we don't have time to go into all of this. Uh, and therefore, that Ukraine is de- democratic and rejects the idea that Moscow is the center of a Russian state of which it is part of, is again a fundamental threat to the extent that when they had the revolution in 2013-14, in the winter of 13 and 14, uh, and then they overthrew the government, Putin was thinking of invading with nuclear weapons in 2014 by his own admission. Mm. Wow. That, that invasion was an act of hysteria in many respects, as is this. Uh, and uh, that's, that's not the wrong word to use in this conjunction. So what you have is a confluence of ideological, political, military, and to a lesser degree, economic motives coming together to justify, in Putin's mind, the attacking of Ukraine because it refuses to play its part in his historical drama. I mean, you don't normally find heads of state writing 5,000-word essays arguing that the country next door is not really a country and should be part of yours. I I mean, nobody could imagine, for example, uh, say uh, Biden or uh, Prime Minister uh, uh, Trudeau sitting down and writing a 5,000-word essay on why Canada and the United States ought to be reunited and then invading the other country to see that. I mean, but in Russia, if you are a conservative Russian, I mean, and if you studied Russian history deeply and so on, you begin to understand the roots of this mania, again, which is not necessarily a wrong term in this conjunction. So that adds to the term, the the, uh, issues you talked about. Finally, in Russian domestic politics, it is never wrong to look strong, to play the part of a great power, and especially as Putin thought they were going to win in three days uh, or a week at most, uh, that he could get away with it, it would boost his dom- domestic standing, which was, again, beginning to fall, just as it was in 2013-14 when he invaded Crimea. So that's an extra motive f- for all this. So you really get to questions of the security 
of the Russian state, the security of Putin and his system, Putin's personal ambition to go down in history as a regatherer of Russian lands, to use the Russian term. And uh, all those motives come together here. So now, so we now sort of have a sense of why they did it. So now if we jump forward to, you know, we're a year into this war and people are trying to make sense and, and the sort of the common narrative is that Russia has performed terribly. And I think there seems to be plenty of evidence for that. But we have we've we had Rebecca Koffler on um, a month or two ago and her point was that, you know, this is sort of pretty standard Russian practice where they'll perform poorly initially. And then, you know, the the Russians are used to to taking casualties and suffering losses, but they will persist. And then persisting over time, there's a strong chance that they'll that they could win. Do you read the the performance of the Russians uh, differently? Are are they performing poorly? Are they learning and adapting? Are they simply going to outlast uh, the the Ukrainians? How do you see it? Um, there's no doubt that their performance up to date has been incompetent. There's no there's no other way to describe it. Um, I don't, there, may, there has been some learning, but not enough. Uh, if you look at uh, this, th- th- these horrible battles around the city of Bakhmut, they do look like trench warfare of World War One. That's a hundred years ago, and they don't seem to have learned anything since then. I mean, they're just essentially human wave attacks. Uh, and they're taking hundreds of casualties a day. The problem for Russia is it no longer has that kind of manpower reserve that it used to have. And it doesn't have the luxury of uh, sitting back and training these guys because it's undermined uh, the long-term training that used to be uh, a hallmark of a lot of armies. Uh, Today, the Russian army, you get in, normally in peacetime, you're there for a year. And anybody who knows the army knows that's not a lot of time to, to do training. Right. Particularly on modern weapons. Then you have all the cultural deficiencies that are still there in the Russian army that make it even harder. So uh, they can try to replicate what they have done in the past. It's not working. They're not gaining ground. Uh, they, Putin may think he's going to break the will of the West by energy, by nuclear, by energy blackmail, by nuclear blackmail, uh, that you, by destroying Ukraine's economy, by uh, these missile strikes, which are an element of Russian doctrine. And so on. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think the alliance is going to fall apart. It's been under strain. But the whole thrust of American policy has been to keep the alliance together. I think that's one of the reasons why perhaps they have not given Ukraine some of the systems that they wanted as soon as Ukraine wanted it, because uh, Biden understands or at least believes that the strength of of the unity of the uh allies is our greatest card against Russia. So the Russian strategy is not going to work and they're going to pay a horrendous price and they're going to lose. And I'm pretty confident in saying that. I don't think they, I I don't see a lot of us. It's not just I, many experts 
do not see how Russia can achieve a victory in this war. And the cost already to them, human life, economically, reputation, otherwise, has been horrendous. A million, a million people ran away from Russia already. And these are people, you know, the most productive sectors of the economy in, in many cases. So do you, so, you know, this sort of brings to light this, this question of Russian nuclear or Vladimir Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons. Do you see that if, if this plays out as you suspect it will, to and sort of a last ditch effort. I mean, we we just saw, you know, there's now a a you know an arrest warrant that's been issued by the International Criminal Court for the president of Russia. Do you see him using nuclear weapons sort of as a last ditch effort to to turn the tide? Uh, to you know, if he's going to go down. Uh, because if, you know, do you see him staying in power if he loses this conflict? So therefore he's forced to use uh, nuclear weapons to turn the tide of the conflict. How how do you see that, you know, that sort of back end of this conflict playing out? You, you've, you've asked several questions here. Uh, the nuclear threats, and I, I've written a lot about this. The nuclear threats have been there from the beginning. Uh, they're there all the time, even before the war started. Uh, and they, they, they went up right till Wednesday. The last one was on Wednesday. Uh, they're going to continue. But I think in the West, there's, and there's a justified belief that although we have to normally take Russian threats seriously, that these threats regarding Ukraine are of diminishing uh, utility. Operationally speaking, you know, you don't launch a nuclear weapon unless you think you're going to gain something strategically thereby. Now, we're not talking, I, I believe, about the launching of nuclear weapons against a European country or the United States. I think everybody in Moscow understands that that's the end of the Russian state yeah. if you do that. And there's no pretext for it. So what we are talking about is probably probably launching either a low-yield or tactical nuclear weapon. Those are not the same things uh, against Ukraine. But it's not going to get you any kind of military advantage. The Russian army cannot operate in a nuclear environment. That much has been demonstrated in exercises. So the army cannot advance. It's, just, it's not going to f- fragment y- Ukrainian morale. Quite the opposite. Uh, and it's not going to... In- uh, frighten the Europeans. It's going to antagonize them further. And you'll just add another indictment to the uh, International Criminal Court's justified indictment of Putin and several other people uh, for war crimes. I mean, in terms of uh, international law, for example, aggression, the simple fact of aggression is a war crime. The deportation of children, and they is the main article of indictment uh, in the International Criminal Court's case because uh, they went up and basically admitted that they were doing it publicly. Uh, But we all know of, you know, massive number of war crimes. This war is really a genocide. I am completely at ease in describing it that way. Um, Putin's belief that Ukraine does not deserve an independent existence 
as a state or as a nation is documented, uh, as is uh, uh, the belief on Russian media uh, uh, of, of a similar belief. Uh, we have, you know, enormous evidence of war crimes, of mass murder, mass deportation, not just of children, uh, rape, other sexual crimes against both men and women, apparently, uh, destruction of cultural monuments in Ukraine, and theft, and so on. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. So do you, I guess one of the things I've thought, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is I've wondered if the ICC indictment was a mistake because it would only push Putin to continue as opposed to ultimately reach some sort of negotiated settlement. And, and that, well, this gets back to an earlier question of yours, Adam. What happens if he loses? Right. A negotiated settlement is tantamount to a loss. Because, first of all, you have to understand there's no basis for a negotiated settlement right now on either side. Second, if you look at the record, there are at least eight, maybe more, eight international agreements and treaties in which Russia freely entered into, that Putin broke to invade Ukraine. So the question then becomes, if we sit down with them and sign another agreement, what's it, what is it worth? I, I mean, everybody who has ever negotiated an agreement in his or her life, you know, has this question, am I dealing with a credible partner? This guy's track record, you know, shows they're not going to obey anything they signed to. So what's the purpose of negotiation? And It's just going to lead to, you know, even if it were possible, it will just lead to another war. Now, defeat means, I think, that he will be removed from power. And his system may go with him. And that frightens the hell out of all of his uh, elites because they're tied to him. So that might lead them to think about, you know, uh, well, uh, what has been called in, in the Israel uh, analogy is Samson option, you know, from the Bible, Samson pulls the pillars of the town, uh, of, the, of the building down with him so that the Philistines will die with him. And I saw it, but it's not going to get anywhere. It's not going to gain anything for Russia. It's going to just add to the general destruction and, and further uh, degradation of the Russian state. So um, I don't see a negotiated basis for a settlement here. I think the only way this ends 
should be a Ukrainian victory and the recovery of all the territories seized by Russia eight years ago. Um, and the reconstitution by the Russian people of the Russian state uh, and so forth. Uh, um, and uh, I'm leery of all this talk about Russia breaking apart and so on, because while I, I understand it might be necessary or fun for analysts to sit and, uh, and ponder this, uh, we're dealing with a country that has several thousand nuclear weapons and people in charge who will use them if they have to. But it's not going to do you any good against Ukraine. Yeah. So then if you if you were to pull out your crystal ball and, you know, ponder into it deeply, how do you see, you know, what what would be your timeline of what events for what you think, let's say, most likely case as opposed to best case, worst case? But what what's the most likely case that you think is in sort of the realm of the possible? Okay. Uh, as you know, I don't like to predict, uh, although we, we, uh, you know, Yogi Berra famously said that prediction is difficult, especially about the future. Uh, but uh, my forecast, let me, put, let me use a slightly different term. My forecast is, first of all, the Russian offensive has reached, I think, or is about to reach its culminating point. Uh, the, ev- the most recent evidence is that it's running out of steam and it failed to achieve anything except to kill lots of people. Uh, when the weather turns better in Ukraine, a few weeks from now, April, May, maybe June, we're going to see a Ukrainian counteroffensive. The Ukrainians are very optimistic about this, as they have to be, at least, and should be. Uh, the future of the war depends on the outcome of that counteroffensive. If it's successful, I think that it, it's going to do a lot of damage to the Russian army and to Putin's domestic political position and international political position. But, uh, but again, I can't see them doing nuclear weapons for the reasons I said. There are two others that come to mind as well. For the uh, Russian government to launch a nuclear weapon. Only Putin can give the authorization. But the he two other men, the Minister of Defense and Chief of Staff, uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov, have to uh, participate in this for it to go through. It's not clear they're going to do so. Right. Second, uh, we now see that Russia is a supplicant of China. No other way to describe <laughs> it. it. It's a dep- well, if you read the language and see the body language and so forth of the recent visit, visit that, that's clear. China's made it clear it is against any use of nuclear weapons. So uh, you antagonize China and India, which is a major uh, partner of, of Russia's normally, and you gain nothing for it. So I, I just don't see that it's going to be used. But, um, you know, leaders are not always as calculating as we academics like to portray them as being, <laughs> as you well know. I mean, uh, and they might do it. I mean, the American government takes nu- Russian nuclear threats uh, as being credible threats, and, and they're right to, to do so. Uh, this is whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and I think the reasons are obvious, 
but uh, it's very difficult for me right now to see any utility for Russia in going first with nuclear weapons. So do you see uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's worst nightmare uh, where I think I've, you know, I've seen that, uh, that he watched the videos of, of what happened to, was it Saddam or Gaddafi? Gaddafi. 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 Uh, do you see that as, as a, in, in Putin's future or do you see him sort of, cause as he gets, he, you know, he's, he's aging and eventually his ability to, to hold that type of a stressful, challenging office is, is going to diminish and I wonder how long does he last? I've seen, you know, 2029. I've seen, you know, I've seen all sorts of predictions, but. These are all, again, you know, speculation. And a lot of it is not based on any kind of evidence. There's all this talk that he's sick. There's no hard evidence to that effect. Um, he's a 70-year-old man. Most 70-year-old people I know have some problem. Yeah. With but he had as it may. Um, I, Gaddafi's end is one possibility. It's, he's certainly obsessed with it. I mean, he's watched this apparently watched this film repeatedly. I think basically when the time comes, he, the girlfriend, and the children, and t- and uh, take you know, take the first plane out. Uh, they've got plenty of money hidden away somewhere beyond where Russians can get at it, and go to Abu Dhabi because I don't know that he can make it to Europe. Yeah. Uh, Abu Dhabi or Dubai or somewhere like that. Yeah. And that's it. He doesn't. Because he knows full well what would happen if he stuck around. Yeah. And he doesn't head to Beijing. Well, that's a possibility. But would you go to Beijing when you can go to Dubai? <laughs> that's a good point. So I guess as we're we're running. It's a much longer flight anyway. Yeah. <laughs> as we're running low on time, uh, what, what should what should our listeners make of this budding relationship between Xi and, and Vladimir Putin? I have, I have believed for some time and written about this extensively, uh, like the paper I did for you, that it's an alliance. Now, it's not an alliance like NATO, but it's an alliance particularly strong in the military sphere, where we didn't hear a lot about that in, this, in these discussions. Uh, these discussions re- reaffirmed both Russia's economic and political dependence on China. They uh, reaffirmed that uh, China is calling the shots, or to use Bismarck's analogy about alliances, China is the horse is the rider, and Russia is the horse. Um, that's going to continue. Uh, the Russians are not going to, be, I think, are being basically told. You're not going to do crazy things like this anymore without our support. You know, we, we need you as an ally and we support you, but don't try this again. Um, economically, Russia is becoming, well, the Financial Times used the word colony of China. Wow. Um, yeah, quoting a Russian, uh, saying that. So, I, you know, it, it validates what I've been writing. I mean, I, I, I have this debate with my a lot of uh, our colleagues, you know, who are, are, you know, they sort of 
hung up on the categorization of an alliance, that an alliance must be a mutual agreement to defend each other against attack. And we don't see that in the Russia-China agreement. While there's an intimate strategic partnership and it's multidimensional and everybody agrees to that, it's not an alliance. Well, I say it is an alliance. Uh, it also has a, a strong military dimension. That does not mean that if China is attacked, Russia will come to its aid or vice versa. But it could mean that. And there are scenarios which could involve both of them. Korea, for example. Right. Where they both have vital interests and the legitimate vital interests. I mean, I, nobody denies that. So uh, that's my take on the alliance. All right. So as we come to the end of the show and, you know, we've talked for a half hour about Russia and its, its history, its role in Ukraine, its alliance with China. If you had any sort of main points that you would want the listeners to take away and to remember tomorrow, next week, uh, what, what would be those, those kind of key points that, that our listeners should, should remember? One, the, the only positive ending to this war is, is a Ukrainian victory. There can be no real concept of European security as long as Russia's able to think about reconstituting an empire. Second, by defeating Russia, we strike at China as well. Uh, Chinese know that. They don't want Russia defeated, but uh, we should be doing it anyway. Third, uh, if there are people out there who believe this propaganda line that uh, Russia espouses Christian values, which apparently is popular among certain conservative commentators and sectors of the population, they should rapidly get over that this illusion. Uh, there is nothing more unchristian, if you like, than genocide, and that's what this war is. And the ICC uh, indictment goes quite a way in, in, describe, in affirming that. Fourth, I'm skeptical about the Russians' use of nuclear weapons. And fifth, it is necessary for the West to understand that we are under attack, not necessarily kinetically, except in Ukraine, but nevertheless, uh, you know, what, what scholars call hybrid or, you know, non-kinetic warfare from both China and Russia, and that we need to mobilize our resources and our allies accordingly. All right. We'll make that the last word. Stephen Blank, thanks for joining us. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Adam. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode of NucleCast. What a what a enthralling story that Steve Blank told. Uh, you know, I was just enjoying listening. Uh, he's a great storyteller, and I'm not sure I found any fault in what he said. You know, it's it's certainly all plausible. I, and I'd be curious to know if there's others who would disagree. I'd, I'd be curious to know what what they would say in terms of why. But I tell you, it was and it it did make sense, uh, at least to me. I, I don't know what y'all thought, but the tenets of the argument and, you know, as we get into the sort of the prediction of the future, I mean, we can all take our own different direction there because we're all guessing but 
I thought that Steve's explanation of Russian history and behavior was a great one. And I hope you enjoyed it. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.